0: it is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shoal, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, and even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for the darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depth of the earth your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them the days that were made formed for me when as yet there was none for them how precious to me are your thoughts O god how vast is the sum of them if i would count them they are more than the sand i awake and i am still with you oh that you would slay the wicked O god and lead me in the way everlasting.
1: Morning, everyone. It's good to be back here with you guys. I I know I've been here the past few weeks, but I haven't been up here. If you don't know me, my name is Eric. I'm the pastor here at the Bridge Church. I have a new four-week-old son, and so I've been on leave for a few weeks as we adjust to having our second child under the age of two at home. It has been a crazy few weeks, but it's great to be back here. And as I've mentioned already, we, this year, we're going through the story of the Bible together as a church. We have the Bible reading plan that we're going through. And then each week the sermon is coming from something from the previous week's reading. And so the past couple weeks, we've been looking at King David, probably the greatest king in the history of Israel, one of the most prominent figures in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible. And the Bible describes David as a man after God's own heart. He passionately sought to know and follow and obey God. And so two weeks ago, we we heard a sermon about this passionate desire of David to pursue and honor God. And we saw him reach out and and care for his enemy's grandson and provide for this man and, and look after him and give him shelter and food and clothing throughout his life. But then last week, we looked at David again and we saw that even though he's a man after God's own heart, he is still a man, sinful and flawed and sharing the weaknesses that all of us carry inside of us. We saw that he stole another man's wife and then had this man murdered to cover up what he had done. And today, we're, we're sticking with David. We're not looking at a, another story from his life, but rather a song that he wrote. So the book of Psalms in the Bible, it's the longest book in the Bible, and it's a collection of ancient Hebrew songs. And many of these songs were written by King David, including the one that we're looking at today, Psalm chapter 139. And so today we're gonna look at Psalm 139, and we're gonna see that God's presence and power equip us to live rightly. God's presence and power equip us to live rightly. So we'll look at a troubling prayer, a repetitive request, and then search me. But first, let's pray. Father, we pray that you would speak to us today. God, we thank you for this psalm and just the amazing reminder that it gives us of your presence with us wherever we go, whatever we do, the fact that you are with us, looking after us, and caring for us. And Father, we pray that you would speak to us today and show us your goodness, show us your power, your power for, for us and our good. God, give us a greater love for you as we look at your words. In Jesus' name, amen. So first up, we're gonna look at a troubling request. Now, Psalm 139 is probably one of the most famous psalms in the Bible. I grew up in church and we would learn songs based on this psalm. Some of the earliest songs I can remember learning were based on this chapter, Psalm 139. And yet, I don't know how closely you were paying attention during the scripture reading, but there's some stuff in this chapter that just sort of makes you go, huh? Like, it might've made you uncomfortable hearing some of that stuff there at the end. Uh, I actually, despite growing up in church and learning songs about this from, from as early as I can remember, don't think it was until I was like 20 and in Bible college that I actually realized verses 19 through 22 were part of this chapter. And in case you missed it during the scripture reading, I'm going to read it again just to draw your attention to it. It says, "O oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And I'm guessing, I could be wrong, I'm guessing for many of us, when we, when we hear this section of the Psalm, our initial thought is probably something like, this whole chapter is a celebration of God's goodness and his presence with his people. And what is this doing in the middle of it? Couldn't David have just left these four verses out and had you know, this nice, happy, song about God's presence with us. Because literally the whole rest of this song, it's celebrating how great it is to live in a world where our heavenly father looks after us and cares for us. And that he guards and protects every minor detail of our lives. And then, oh, by the way, please wipe out the bad guys because I hate them so much. Just seems like it doesn't fit, right? And you might be wondering things like, why is this in here? Is it okay for us to pray prayers like this? And how could David pray this, especially after we, what we saw last week about him? You know, we don't know when David wrote this Psalm. We don't know whether it was before or after the whole incident with Bathsheba, but either way, that whole series of events reveals some deep issues in David's heart that seemed to put him on the wrong side of his prayer right here, right? Like David stole someone else's wife, which seems to put him in the category of the wicked. David murdered the husband to cover it up, which would make David a man of blood, which again, he prays against here. Nathan the prophet told David that David had despised the name of the Lord, which seems to put David in the group of those who hate you, O Lord, which again, he prays against here. All of these groups that David seemingly belongs to are the exact groups that he's praying against here. How can he pray this prayer when, when he's the type of person that he's praying against, right? How does this work? And these questions are big questions that are probably worth addressing at the start of the sermon because they're the types of things that if we don't address them now, they could distract us when we look at the rest of the chapter. So, I want us to start off just looking at a few things about these four verses that we need to notice if we're going to understand where they fit and where they belong in in this chapter. First, realize that David has a more holistic view of sin and evil than most people in our culture. I think this is changing the past couple years as culture becomes more aware of the systemic effects of, of evil. But I think generally, historically, our culture has tended to see sin and evil mainly as personal, individual choices. But David knows that evil operates on a wider level. Social injustices bring widespread suffering to people throughout culture. And David saw that structural injustice in society led to widespread evil, which made him want to ask God to do something about it he looked around at his his society and his culture and he said, God, you need to do something to fix this. Like my guess, and I could be wrong, but my guess is that many of us would probably feel wrong about praying this type of prayer in today's world. But let me ask you, if we were alive instead of today, back in the early 1940s, as Hitler was leading the Holocaust, would you feel comfortable praying this type of prayer against Hitler? I would. I would. You know why? Because what they were doing was evil. What they were doing needed to be stopped in order for the world to flourish. If, the world, if God was going to guard us and protect us like this whole psalm is celebrating, in order for that to happen, that evil needed to be stopped. And it, if you would feel comfortable praying this prayer against Hitler, realize the evil in our world today, it's not in a different category than Hitler's evil. Now, here's what I mean. All human evil at, at its core and the most fundamental level is humanity trying to take God's place in the world. Whether, whether it's a little white lie, whether it's the Holocaust, the thing that's driving us from the inside in our hearts is, is this attitude that says, God, I don't want you to be God. I don't want you to tell me how to live. I don't want you to be in control. Let me live the way that I want. For Hitler, that led to massacring millions of Jews. For us, I hope it doesn't lead to that. But the difference is not at the most fundamental heart level. The difference is the level of restraint that God places on us to keep us from the destruction that we're potential of. Does that make sense? And so most people in today's world don't have the scope of power to inflict the type of widespread injustice that Hitler did. But the things happening in our hearts today that lead us to do evil are the exact same things that were happening in Hitler's heart that led him to do evil. It's not a different type of evil at work in the world. It's just more restrained right now. And I think because the evil in today's world typically isn't as in your face as Hitler's evil was, it can be easy for us to sometimes grow more comfortable with it, to feel like it's not really that bad. And as we do that, we become more and more uncomfortable praying a prayer like this or hearing someone else pray it. But with a biblical understanding of the world that sees evil as, as being truly destructive on a widespread scale, this is a prayer that followers of Jesus can pray. The second thing to notice, David isn't praying here specifically against people who have harmed him, but against people who oppose God. This this isn't David's personal agenda against his own enemies who have offended him. No, it's him trying to align himself with God and asking God to work for the sake of God's name. The third thing to notice here, David isn't appealing to karma or some type of impersonal force to get back at these people. He's not trying to take vengeance into his own hands. He's entrusting the results to the hands of a personal, caring, intimately involved in every detail of his life, God. And as we've seen in our journey through the Bible, God's character is well-established throughout the Bible up to this point. We've seen that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is quick to forgive. He is quick to show love and he is slow to become angry, which means that this prayer, is not David saying, hey God, I was at the grocery store today. Someone stepped in front of me and took my place in line. Please strike them dead with lightning on their walk home. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is God, there are people in the world who are consistently, repeatedly oppressing and abusing others and their actions are causing harm to people's livelihood and their families. And and they're doing this consistently and they're doing this repeatedly. And unless you step in and make this right, Our city or our country or our world is gonna become an increasingly unjust and evil place to live. So for the sake of our the people here, our friends, our families, and ourselves, and for the sake of your name, God step in to make things right. Let me ask you, do you ever look at the problems in the world and, and want to pray a prayer like this? God, there's so much that's wrong, I just wish that you would make it right. The fact that God had this prayer saved for us in the Bible means that God gives you permission to pray these types of prayers. You don't have to bottle up those feelings that something is wrong. You don't have to feel like they're unworthy of you if you follow Jesus. No, you can honestly bring them to God, place them at his feet and let him handle them. But at the same time, that doesn't give you the right to seek vengeance yourself. When we take these feelings and and we turn them into prayer what we're doing is we're taking the desires of our hearts and we're placing them in god's hands we're trusting him to do what is right and then we're called to follow jesus command to love your enemies seek practical tangible ways to do good to these people even as we pray for god to bring them justice and we can continue to seek to love them and do good to them and entrust it to God's hand because God promises that he will bring justice. And he'll do that in one of two ways, either by letting them suffer the consequences of their actions, or by letting them trust in Jesus and have all the consequences of their actions placed on him. And if you're freaking out saying that's not fair, that God would forgive them for all of the terrible things that they've done. It's true, it's not fair, but that's also the only hope any of us has of being on the right side of God's judgment, is that God takes all the things that we have done, places the guilt for them on Jesus and gives us forgiveness. See, this this prayer entrusts justice to the God who is kind, who is patient, who is quick to forgive, who overflows with love, but who will bring the guilty to justice. And then the fourth thing we need to see about this prayer is that this prayer, doesn't exempt David from this group. You notice, if you look at Psalm 139, these verses are right near the end of the chapter, but they're not the very end of the chapter. There's two more verses that come after this. And and those two verses are actually David asking God to show David the evil inside him. He says, search me, O God, know my heart, try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David recognizes by praying these things against the wicked, I might be praying a curse on myself, but he recognizes God's character. And so he he throws the full weight of his hope on God's mercy and forgiveness because David knows that God forgives. And so he's able to know that God loves him as a father and as a good shepherd, even in the midst of his failure because David knows that God is faithful to forgive. He knows that God's not out to condemn him. And so David is able to close this Psalm by looking not just out at everyone else in the evil in the world, but actually at the evil in his own heart. And he prays this intensely personal, potentially terrifying prayer, which brings us to our second point, a repetitive request. Because on one level, these last two verses of the Psalm seem completely unnecessary. Verse one of Psalm 139 says, oh God, you have searched me and known me. And then the whole rest of the chapter is a celebration of all the various ways that God has searched David and known him. So God knows when David sits and when he stands. That's verse two. God knows David's thoughts. That's also verse two. Verse three, God knows all the the places that David goes. Verse four, God knows exactly what David's going to say even before David says it. And that's only the first four verses. The Psalm goes on and on, outlining all the things that God already knows about David, all the ways God has already searched David. And then at the end, after David has celebrated all these ways, God has searched him and known him. The culmination of the Psalm is David saying, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Now, why would David pray for this after he's just written an entire song celebrating the fact that God's already doing it? And the reason is because David isn't content merely with God knowing him. David wants to be personally transformed by God's knowledge of him. David wants to have the things that God knows about him be revealed to David himself so that he can see them and he can turn from the ways that are out of line with God's proper way of living and instead live in line with God's ways that lead to life. So David's prayer, search me, O God, and know my heart. It's a request for God to take all the things that God knows about David, the things buried so deep inside David that even David himself can't see them and to bring them to a place where David can see them and he can turn from them and to God. And in case you're not already aware of this, praying this way can be really, really scary because the deepest desire of every human heart is to be fully known and fully loved. And because that's our greatest desire, one of the greatest fears in every human heart is that we will be fully known, but not fully loved that someone will get to know us, and when they finally get to know the real us in our fullness, they'll say, yeah, yeah, that's not good enough for me. That based on a true and accurate knowledge of us, we will be rejected. But we all have this desire to be fully known and fully loved. And experiencing that from a human is great, but it's even greater to be fully known and fully loved by God. And according to the Bible, all of us, have rebelled against God. All of us, that's what the Bible calls sin. We've taken things other than God and making them ultimate in our lives. And we've pushed God out of the way and said, God, I don't want you to be God for me. The Bible calls that sin. We're all sinful people living in a sinful and broken world and God is perfect. So David right here, he's asking for this thorough examination of every fault and flaw within him from God's perfect, all-seeing, all-knowing eye. No human being can stand before that examination and hope to come out being accepted based on our own goodness. We all fall short. We're all going to fail the test. If you're relying on your own goodness for your standing before God, this will be the most terrifying prayer ever. Because if God actually answers it, it will crush you it will show you how far short you fall of deserving his love and acceptance. And it will show you how thoroughly impossible it is for you to fix yourself. And yet David was willing to pray this prayer. Why, how? How can he have the freedom to do that, especially with all the wicked things that David had done? How can someone so messed up pray a prayer so scary? And it's because David understands something. He understands that there is a way for God to look at him to see all of his faults and flaws and shortcomings and sins and still respond to him with love and forgiveness rather than wrath. He understands the character of God. As we saw a couple months ago, he understands that God is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. David couldn't have known how God was going to do this because it hadn't happened yet, and Jesus hadn't come yet, but David knows that God will do it. That's why as he goes through this entire Psalm and talks about all the ways God sees him and knows him, it's always a positive and a celebration. Throughout the Bible, the fact that you can't escape God's sight feels like bad news to a lot of people, right? Have you ever ever felt like you wished you could get away from God's presence? Maybe you did something wrong, you felt guilt over it and you were like, I just, just wish I could escape this guilt, get away from God's glance. <laughs> or maybe you're just going through a tough season and you're like, God, this is your fault. If you would just get away, give me some space. I could get things back to normal. Life would be like it should be again. And in those moments, God's presence can feel oppressive and scary and you want to get away from it. And if you've ever felt that way, you're not alone. Throughout the Bible, lots of people want to get away from God's presence. As early as the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they disobey God, and then God comes to them in the garden, and what do they do? They hide. It's a terrible plan, because as we see here, He knows where we are. We can't get away from Him. Or in the book of Amos, chapter 9, it actually uses a bunch of the language from this psalm But rather than using it as a celebration of God's care for us, it's actually saying judgment is coming and it doesn't matter where you go, you can't get away from it. You go up to the top of the mountains, he's gonna find you there. You go out into the ocean, he's gonna find you there. Doesn't matter where you go, his judgment is gonna find you, you cannot escape it. It's not good news for those people that God knows exactly where they are all the time. Or if you think about the book of Jonah, God tells Jonah, I want you to go to this city, tell them, to turn from their evil ways. And Jonah says, nope, I'm running the opposite direction, going to the middle of the sea. And what happens when Jonah is in the middle of the sea? God's hand finds him. He sends a storm to bring him back. Jonah cannot escape. Throughout history, one of the most common responses of sinful humanity to the all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful eye of God is the desire to escape because we know we fall short. But in Psalm 139, there's no hint of David wanting to escape God's notice. Yeah, in verse seven, he asks the question, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? But even that is only part of a larger celebration of God's care and provision for him. David doesn't ask that question because he's hoping to escape from God. No, he asks it, because he's so excited that no matter where he goes, God is always with him. He can't get away from it. God, his his good shepherd, is always guiding him no matter where he goes. God, his heavenly father, always is protecting his back no matter where he is. And that's true despite all of his sin and failure. Like we said, David understands that God forgives. He didn't know how God could do it, but he knew that God's character was trustworthy. So when God promised to forgive, it was as good as done. But even though David couldn't know how God would forgive, you and I can. The New Testament tells us that the way God forgives is by sending Jesus. That Jesus takes the debt and the punishment that we owe for our rebellion against God. He pays the price for us. So that you and I can know God as our Father and as our Good Shepherd, despite all of the sin and rebellion inside us. Trusting in Jesus to forgive our sin and rebellion against God, it's the only hope that we as fallen humans can have that God can fully know us and yet fully love us and accept us. But once we understand that truth, it frees us to pray the same prayer as David, which brings us to our third point, search me. Because once we know that God loves us as our heavenly father, once we know that God cares for us as our good shepherd, despite all the sin, despite all the mess, despite everything that's wrong in us, it's actually meant to lead us to deeper love and deeper obedience of him. This process that we see David modeling here, turning from sin and turning to God, It's the process that leads to spiritual growth. There's two steps, kind of like two pedals on a bike. We call them repentance and faith. Repentance is turning from all the things other than God that we've put our ultimate confidence, our ultimate hope, our ultimate trust in and recognizing they cannot sustain us. And faith is turning and placing our ultimate hope and confidence and trust in God why it's like two pedals on a bike, because it's movement in the opposite direction, but it's connected. You can't do one without doing the other. As you turn from these other things, you turn to God. Repentance and faith, it's two sides of the same action. And that's what David is doing in this prayer as he closes this psalm. He's saying, God, there are places in my heart where I'm relying on things other than you to give me ultimate fulfillment and ultimate satisfaction in life. And they're buried really deep in there, so deep that I can't even see them myself, but you can. God, you know what they are. So God, please show them to me. Show them to me so I can see them for myself and turn from them. Show them to me so that I can see the ways I need to be placing my hope in you more deeply each day. And as you show them to me, transform my heart so that my hope is resting more and more in you. And seeking your ways. David right here, he's practicing repentance and faith. And repentance and faith isn't just how David grows spiritually, it's how any of us grow spiritually. So if you were here last week, we had a guest preacher, Josh. I know I mentioned this, but that was his first time ever preaching in church on a Sunday. I thought he did awesome. It was great to have him here. At the end of his sermon, he shared about something called the holistic repentance model that we can use in our repentance. And if you weren't here last week, don't worry, I'll explain it to you in just a minute. But I wanted to today look at that model again and explore what this looks like more hands-on practically in repentance. Because if repentance and faith are the keys that David is using right here to mature in his faith, and if they're the keys that help us mature in our faith, then learning how to repent properly is crucial for us growing spiritually. So as I explain how to use this model, I'm gonna do a case study. I'm gonna use myself as a case study. And the holistic repentance model looks at four different directions of repentance, up, down, back, forward. And it's good to remember these aren't ordered steps where we do like step one, then step two, then step three. There's, there's gonna be some that happen sort of simultaneously. There's gonna be some points where we need to bounce back and forth between one and another and maybe keep coming back to one of them. But for the sake of presentation and just clarity, I'm gonna go through them one at a time. And as I said, I'm using myself in a case study here. As many of you know, and as I just shared with everyone who didn't know already, I've been off work for the past four weeks between paternity leave and annual leave because we're adjusting to having a new baby at home, which means we now have a baby who's about one month old and a baby who's about 23 months old at home. It is an exhausting place to be right now. And typically when I'm off work, I have something going on. Maybe I'm traveling and exploring or relaxing for a week or two, Or maybe I'd go home to visit family, and we're there for maybe three weeks, but we're we're constantly busy going from family event to family event, and it it just keeps us occupied the whole time. But this time, I was at home for four weeks, didn't go anywhere, didn't do anything exciting. I spent the bulk of my time watching and hanging out with an almost two-year-old. And I realized very quickly, with the help of my wife, that I find a lot of my worth and identity in my job rather than in God's love for me. Now you may be thinking, Eric, this is Hong Kong. Everyone does that here. It's not that big of a deal, but it is a big deal. And I'm gonna walk you through this process to show you how big of a deal it actually is. We're gonna start with looking at upward. So when we repent upward, we ask, how does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus take care of this sin? So with my sin of seeking my worth and identity through my job, rather than through God, my father and good shepherd loving me. How does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus take care of this sin in my heart? Any thoughts? We can make it interactive. Okay, I'll, I'll tell you. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus tells me that I am deeply loved, deeply valuable, and accepted by my heavenly father, apart from anything I do. I don't have to earn my worth and identity through doing a good job at my job. My worth and my identity and my value, they're gifts given to me by God. And so I'm set free from having to work to try to earn those things for myself. And upward repentance is actually the faith element of repentance. It's looking back to Jesus, turning back to God, reminding myself of His truth, reorienting myself around His reality. And this step is crucial because the rest of the process is going to ask some really hard and uncomfortable questions about our sin and its impacts. And if we don't have this foundation of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and what He's done for us in place, these other things we're going to realize about ourselves can crush us. So this is probably the step we're gonna have to come back to most often as we go through this process in real life, just to remind ourselves, yes, I have messed up terribly. Yes, I'll probably mess up terribly again in the future, but that doesn't define me, he does. Next, we have backwards. And backwards repentance asks, what do I need to confess to my gospel community? Now I realize this step probably feels really uncomfortable to many of us because if you've had any time or experience around church, and you've heard about repentance or confessing sin, it usually talks about doing that to God, not to other people. I don't know about you, I find it terrifying to confess my sins to other real life people around me. Anyone else feel that way? It's a little scary, yeah? So why is this necessary? Well, for a couple of reasons. And the big one is community is one of the big ways that God actually searches us, like this prayer asks for him to search us. See, sin blinds us. And one of the big things it blinds us to is our own blindness. We each have blind spots in our lives where we are trusting and relying in things other than God, which leads us to act in ways that hurt ourselves and others. And we don't even realize those things about ourselves, but you know who does recognize them? Your spouse, your children, your friends, your coworkers, the people who are impacted and hurt by it. And so the people around us can often see our blind spots more clearly than we can. And so if we really want to pray this prayer, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. If we want God to search us in this way so that we can see our sin and repent of it and turn to Him in faith, we need to enlist the help of some trustworthy and mature Christian friends in that process. So for me, that group, it includes Justine, It includes the other elders here at the church. It includes Chris and Jeremy who came and were guest preachers here the past few weeks and a few other close friends. And building up that group of people who know all my deepest, darkest secrets was one of the most terrifying things I've ever done in my life. But having done it, I can say it's absolutely worth it. Because now no matter what struggle I'm facing, I have people who who know the ways that I struggle on a regular basis, the ways that I'm tempted on a regular basis, I can come to them and tell them what's going on and it's not gonna shock them. I know that they're not gonna push me away because they've already proven through, through many conversations and experiences in the past that they are gonna stick with me and they're gonna show me love despite my failure and my weakness and it's awesome. So with my sin of seeking my identity in my work, what do I need to confess to my gospel community? Well, I need to confess that during my time off, I found myself getting frequently stressed and anxious because I felt like I was being unproductive and there was something wrong with me. I felt like I had very little worth and value because I wasn't getting stuff done. I need to confess that a lot of the time I was physically present with my family, but I was emotionally absent. I would turn to my phone and read articles because it gave me this feeling that at least I was doing something productive. And again, these are hard things to admit, which is why I constantly need to turn back And ask that upward question how does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus take care of this sin? Because that's what defines me, not my sin and its consequences. And once I repent backwards, I need to repent forward. In this step, I ask what do I need to get into the light with my gospel community? Or maybe another way of asking this question is what are the specific ways I will sin in the future if the grace of God does not rescue me? And so, because I find so much of my identity in my work, Here are the ways that I will sin in the future if God doesn't rescue me. This is hard. I'll become a workaholic, neglecting my family for the sake of being productive. I'll be emotionally distant from my family, teaching my kids and my wife through my actions that my work is more important to me than they are. When things at the church aren't going well, I'll get discouraged and depressed. If I perceive that someone in the church is getting in the way of my success, I'm gonna be short and impatient with them and maybe most dangerous of all, I'll put on a show of spirituality, faking a level of spiritual maturity that I don't really have, because I believe the lie that this behavior will lead to success in my job. And by doing that, I'll silently promote a culture of hypocrisy in the church promote and encourage everyone else around me to fake it. Are you starting to see how this, this thing that feels like no big deal, that everyone in the city struggles with can be so deadly and destructive? And I'm sharing this with all of you so that you guys can hold me accountable because I need help. I can't do this on my own. And that's why it's so important for us to have people around us who know our struggles, who, who know where we're gonna mess up and who have permission to call us out on that so that they can be the pro- part of the process of God saving us from ourselves. And then finally, we repent downwards. Here we ask, how might I look at this sin and explore its damage to me, my community, and Christ? And this can be broken down into several smaller steps that we don't have time to get into today, but here's a sampling from my sin. Seeking my identity in work robs me of the security and joy that Jesus offers me through the cross. My sin of seeking my identity through job success destroys relationships and fosters an attitude of pride in my heart. My sin declares to the world that I believe I am the true savior, not Jesus, which directly opposes the message of the gospel that I preach with my mouth. And my sin is seeking to destroy me by robbing me of the abundant life that Jesus came to give me. These are tough truths to face. I would not be able to do that without being crushed unless I was constantly looking back upward at how the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus takes care of this sin. And I realize if you've never tried repenting in this way, it's hard but I encourage you to try it. Either snap a photo of it now or it will be on our website later this week that you can look it up on there because this might be one of the main things that God uses as an answer to this prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and to draw you back to himself. So church, God knows everything about you. He knows the best parts of you and the worst parts of you. He sees you at every moment and there's nowhere you can hide from Him. And yet that news is not meant to scare you. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to invite Him to show you more and more deeply where you fall short so you can turn from your sin and and seek to follow Him more deeply and truly with your life. And as we see these shortcomings, the proper response is repentance and faith, repentance and faith, repentance and faith, which will probably be hard, but we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to run away from this process because God loves us. He's our good father. He's our good shepherd. And he's at work in us, showing us how to live in his everlasting way. Let's pray. God, on this Father's Day, we we praise you and celebrate the fact that you are the ultimate good father who sees us in our weakness and our failure and sin and loves us and accepts us, who draws us back to yourself again and again. God, we confess that we have all fallen short. We've all failed to trust you properly. But I pray that you would give us the grace to see our sin and confess our sin and to turn back to you each day. God, we love you, but teach us to love you more.